Welcome to Chinuch 2.0, a show about the massive changes happening to how we do Chinuch, some of which may never be the same again. is all about our chinuch system and things that we should be doing to perhaps make it better. Let's face it. There are a lot of things about our schools that can be improved. And we try to find people that have unique ideas and approaches which can help improve how we educate our children. So this show, we have a conversation with two very interesting women who share their thoughts and ideas for improving the educational experience our children get. And they're coming from a very, very unique perspective, both from inside and outside our chinuch system. Mrs. Shana Schwartz grew up in Lakewood and went to regular schools in Lakewood, but she also has experience teaching in places such as Singapore, Palo Alto, California, places far away from Lakewood, both figuratively and literally. And she has very good ideas practical ideas on how we can make our whole system of chinuch more effective, more interesting, more relatable to our children. And Mrs. Devorah Avrukin, who currently lives and teaches in Houston, Texas, I don't want to spoil her story, but let's just say that she grew up very, very, very far away from Lakewood. So we had this wonderful conversation. We spoke about a lot of different topics, such as how to train our teachers better, what principals should be doing, what's the role of a principal in a school, the cost of education, a kid's exposure to technology, and also what about all the things that are, we're teaching our kids that are just busy work? Like, do we really need to teach our kids how to do long division? Do they need to learn how to write script? Why do we need to teach them facts that can easily be Googled in 10 seconds or less? Also, what's with all those almine, mar? that the girls get on Chumash tests. Are we really helping them out over there? Is that something useful that they could really gain from? So this is a really fascinating conversation. A lot of good ideas were shared. If we're really serious about bringing change to our children's schools, we need to listen to these ideas and we need to share them. And we need to tell our principals and we need to tell our teachers in a nice and positive and respectable way that maybe there is a better method. There's a better approach, and we could be getting much more for our efforts if we just think a little bit differently and take a different approach. And I encourage you to listen to this conversation and also wait till the very end where Mrs. Avrukin shares her very interesting story. Let's go to our conversation with Mrs. Shana Schwartz and Mrs. Devora Avrukin. Hello, Shana. Hello, Devora. Thank you so much for coming on tonight. Thank you. We're excited to be here. Yeah. So we want to talk about the state of education in our yeshiva and girls' schools system. And just want to start with a question. It might be a little, a little bit of a loaded question. But uh, I've spoken to many, many chinuch professionals of, over the, the course of doing this show. And someone who was on a previous show said that, unfortunately, today's, many of today's parents are kids 
who've grown up in the yeshiva uh, and, and the Jewish school system, and and for them it was their experience and was 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 a negative experience, and that we're not graduating happy students. What do you do? You feel that that's true, and what do you have to say about that? Oh, yeah. So, I worked. It's, it's, at, it's Devorah um, speaking, right? Yeah, it's just Devorah. I worked at um, in the five towns for the last four years, um, and I worked at a system that was great. I worked at Islamic School for Girls, and one uh, in the middle division. So I got to see the girls from fifth grade to eighth grade, um, and there was definitely an intense competitiveness about um, the system, even in middle school, because the girls were competing to get into high school. Um, and that was setting them up for a series of competitions in their life. And I had girls say things to me like, Mr. Um, Rukin, if I don't get into a good high school, then I'm not getting into a good seminary, then I'm not gonna marry the right boy, and then what am I gonna do with the rest of my life? So um, I obviously, I, uh, some, most, my oldest graduates now, I've been teaching for about 10 years, my oldest graduates now are just now getting married. They're just a couple of years out of, out of um, seminary. Um, and starting to like live their lives and, and have kids. And there definitely is a feeling of, um, of there's like a, a not realistic, real life view in the Yeshiva system that the competitiveness and intensiveness and the, the ecosystem that we create doesn't really set them up for what life really looks like, the everyday mundaneness of, you know, being a mom and a, and a worker and a, and a wife. And so while I don't know necessarily, I was, in my experience, my limited experience, I don't know if I would say like all of my graduates are unhappy. I do hear a lot of, so what did being geo had set me up for in life? Like, so was that the height? Like that was it? It was, it was just about running geo? Like, so it's a, it's a good question that like, what are we setting our kids up for? And like, you know, it goes back to the idea of what is the purpose of education? And even more importantly, what's the purpose of the chief education? So you're saying a lot um, of it is getting crowded out by the, by the, the competition and the focus, the emphasis on less important things, as opposed to things that people in real life will, will experience. That's like the question I hear a lot from the girls is like, what was, what was the point of this? And what was the point of that? If, my life is about, you know, getting to work, getting my kids dressed, getting, making, you know, having, fulfilling successful relationships, being a good Jew. Like, what was the point of all these other pieces? What was the point of the competition and the extracurriculars? Shauna? Um, so I think it's interesting because my background is not in the yeshiva system, but I grew up in the yeshiva system and now my kids are a part of it. And so I feel like I have a little bit of a different perspective. Um, as an educator, I think that the question of being happy is a complicated one because we tend to graduate teenagers. So, uh, you know, sometimes the word happy in teenagers can be mutually exclusive. So I think if we're looking at students in their school years, my question is not so much, are they happy? But the question that I ask is, is this purposeful? And I think that when we reframe that, that school is about a driving purpose rather than this like happy, idealistic experience, I think that we start to think about what we're doing with and for students in a very different way. And what, what actually makes me think about this is, so I have experience um, mostly in Palo Alto and Singapore teaching both extremely um, high pressured 
uh, like prep kind of environment, environment like Devorah talked about, what we, they call the race to nowhere, right? Like they got to get good grades to get into good private high schools, to get into good Ivy League colleges. Um, Stanford's around the corner. There's incredible pressure for students. Uh, right, so the most, just to clarify, the students over there in these schools are most, mostly not religious, right? Yes, yes. And, um, and so there's definitely um, that, that anxiety that takes away from the experience. But I want to speak for a minute about the exception to this, which is a school that I worked at, which I'll probably reference many times, which is probably one of the best schools I've ever worked at. It's called the Key School. And something that the Key School thinks about is um, how do we create school as a holistic experience for students? So education is one piece of what we're doing here. Um, and I know that later in the show, we'll talk a little bit about some uh, some topics on like purposeful learning and discipline and a lot of different kinds of experiences that happen at school. And I can speak more to how they did that. But again, the question is not so much, are they happy? But the question is, is this a purposeful, meaningful experience that creates engagement that in turn creates positivity? Um, the second quick thing that I want to say, this is my first time uh, intimately engaging in Yeshiva education from an adult perspective as my kids are for the first time in one. And I definitely see an incredible amount of like transference and projection from students, from parents, um, onto their students about their experience. So and Devorah and I have spoken about this. And another, there was a, a recent young teacher who said, you know, I just don't know how to address the problem when the teacher, when the parent said to me, uh, well, I don't know why you're making my kid do this. I did it and there was no point. Or the student in class will say something like, Oh, my mother said there's no point in me doing this anyways. So to me, that's like, I mean, just from a basic standpoint and their heart standpoint, it's horrible, but definitely also something that comes to mind when we think about happy kids is, well, what are we, what are we in that system for? What do we want out of this? And how are we bringing questions around the experience? Okay, but so, but just getting back to the core question, do you see that as uh, even from the people that you know, from your family, from your friends, that graduated schools, Jewish schools, and 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 went through the system, what 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 are their feelings towards it? And like you said, it's transferring over to the kids. Did you see that negativity? Yes, I think there was a lot of two things that I think about, which are there was a lot of useless time like between work and programs. And there were a lot of adults that were difficult to respect even as adults in hindsight. And I think that those are two negative things that do still remain people years later. I think it was, I think so far what I've seen in my experience, I've been, um, I didn't grow up from, um, I grew up, uh, I didn't grow up Jewish, I'm a convert. And so um, coming, I'm coming from a totally outside perspective. So my whole experience with um, seeing graduates of the Yeshiva system is from interacting with adults while I was becoming religious and then um, becoming a Jewish educator. I wanted to become a Jewish educator because I wanted to give back to, to my community. And one of the ways I felt I could do that was because I had a strong secular education. So I felt if I was going to contribute to education, I might as well contribute to Jewish education with my secular with my secular knowledge and be able to give it over in an appropriate way. Um, and so first I had an interaction with the adults and then an interaction with parents who were like, you know, watching the families while I was coming from the families that I interacted with, like struggling with this concept of and how they grew up versus how they wanted their kids to grow up. People struggling with questions of in town yeshivas versus living out of town where it could be more wholesome. And then having spent the last the last five years, I spent between either Eretz Israel or um, the five towns, but 
before moving again back out of town. Um, and these questions are just very pertinent because I think it's just a mixed bag. I don't think that I feel, I'm obviously more of an optimist. I don't feel like I feel that um, I see a overall, like everyone feels really negative. I feel like everybody is asking the question of, of how can we do it the best? How can we make it better? Um, and, and how can we give our kids like a meaningful education? So that's mostly what I think all the questions go back to. Purpose. Right. It speaks to the question again, I think, this idea of purpose. Like, what are we doing? What's the point? Can we build engagement and relevance in this experience called school? Right. Yeah. Okay. So the first target when we're coming to try to improve schools would be the teachers. And we hear a lot of from schools, we hear we hear a lot about this, that there's a shortage of qualified teachers. We don't have the money to pay for good teachers. We don't have the training, uh, to, the way to train good teachers. And and we also have, there. there's also, also the problem that parents complain about, that there are some bad teachers that are in the school already. So what could we do? Shana, you're, educa- you're a, a, a consultant to schools. And Vora, you've been, uh, you, you've seen both the inside and outside of the school systems. What could we do to adequately staff our schools with people that could bring about a better educational experience for our children? Um, that's a great question. The first thing I think about a lot is uh, the young idealistic teacher who walks into a school at 20, right? She's been playing school since she's 10. She's excited. She went to seminar. She thought a lot about it. You know, he's coming out of Colwell. He's very excited. He's into Chinuch, right? He's been the idealistic teacher who comes in and 10 years later, we know exactly what many of them look like. And I think a lot about what do we do for the first five years for new teachers? And when I think about that, I know that money and time and all of this is a struggle, but, and maybe this is a little critical, I'm not sure if we're prioritizing that. I think that what I have seen is that schools make money and time for things that they prioritize. And given the dearth of qualified teachers, by the way, this is not just a firm problem. As we all know, post-COVID, this is an American problem. I teach in one of the top prep schools here in Houston. It's been a challenge. Um, so this is a, a not just a national challenge, a global challenge, right? We need to consider the resources, energy, and effort we're putting to train up new and young teachers. And the reason I think about that um, is because I think a lot about the environment that teachers are spending their first five years in as we start teaching. And I think about uh, some questions like, is the environment sort of inspiring or competitive, right? Is it innovative or boring, right? Is it kind of this feeling of being burnt out or really buying into the future? Um, And I think that this environment that we're creating for teachers is really everything when we're thinking about how we support new teachers in developing and keeping it exciting. So, for example, I know as a teacher that I worked at a school that was... um, not just about training, but also about keeping the environment inspiring. And it went a long way. Like Devorah and I have talked a lot about what it means to walk into teachers' room where teachers are sort of brainstorming innovative ideas and supporting each other, showing up in each other's classrooms, giving feedback. So sometimes it's not just about bringing in that professional outside consultant who can sometimes be more challenging to find. But a lot of times, uh, for example, the school I worked with, one said, you know, we only have money to bring you in one time. What do we then do with your with your work? So we actually brainstormed something that turned out to be really environment, uh, really like uh, it changed the environment among the teachers, which is that they found a book 
that some of the work I was working with them on some growth mindset ideas in the classroom around assessment. They found a book that really spoke to these ideas. And they had a once a week lunch book club. And the school would provide snacks and lunch for the teachers and whoever wanted could come. And the principal spoke a lot about how that created such a different feeling of inspiration and chazuk and support and what kind of peer group was built as a result of that. So to me, train up, train up, train up. Like, the, you know, that's our best bet moving forward. Um, of course, by the way, I just want to cut for one second. Perks. Teacher perks, and Devorah and I talk a lot about this. Teacher perks go a long way. Like we always say, there's a reason that Google gives their employees gyms and food and days off, right? So schools might not be able to do that financially, but schools can do other things. Like one school I worked at, this was such a little example, but it's something that really spoke to the way they thought about teachers. They did something called morning Monday nibbles, and they would provide a cheap breakfast, like yogurts and sprites. Like, Every morning, every Monday morning, you knew there was going to be a nice breakfast with a very sweet handwritten note by different administrators every Monday. So, you know, it's not it's not just about the training, but I also think it's about how much we are respecting and appreciating this like underpaid overwork job that we all, you know, can can agree on probably. Um, it's super important to like, you know, re-emphasize that the teacher shortage is like 100% real. Um, Frontline Education just did a survey and they interviewed 1,200 school leaders and two-thirds of them said that they don't have enough staff for next year for the fall. Mm-hmm. So um, it's definitely not just Ativas. The one thing that really stuck out to me about the survey is, is that urban schools are suffering, are saying that they have more shortages than rural and suburban schools. Part of that is probably because of this like new great migration we're seeing. People are leaving the cities to get bigger houses and to have nicer yards because of like the COVID, you know, impact on us. Um, so that's like really important because that means that most yeshivas are in an urban area. So they're definitely going to be affected by the shortage just like more than other private schools might be. The other thing is, is that I really noticed was the biggest areas of shortage are in special ed substitutes and math, which is super unfortunate because those are three areas that our yeshivas definitely really need boosting in. We definitely need special education teachers. Math is really important and substitutes, you know, a really good substitute goes a long way helping create like a cohesive environment whenever a teacher needs to step out for whatever reason. Um, but I agree with Shauna that um, I don't, I really, I don't think it's always 100% true, but it is real that there's really no such thing as a bad employee. There's a bad, there's a bad manager. And so the more that we work to create a positive culture and environment for teachers, the more that we're going to keep teachers to want to stay in the classroom and to want to stay in our school. It's a really, really big thing for a teacher to have to switch a school because even just seeing the kids, even if you don't have the kid in your classroom from year to year, you see the kid get to grow up. Like if I teach a fifth grader and then I'm at the same system for the next three or four years, I'm going to see that kid graduate as an eighth grader and I'm going to feel my part in that. So that means that the ideal for any teacher is not to have to leave and bounce from place to place to place. They want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. Most people got into this for an idealistic reason. Mm-hmm. So our goal is to create these these like little pieces that make them feel special. I had a, an administrator back at Tuamit who used to do the, like these little punny gifts. Mm-hmm. She'd be like, thanks for making our year so smooth. And she'd give us like smoothie in the cup. Or thanks for making it terrific this week. And we get like a free, like tea. It's just like, it's so funny, but like, you know, there's a reason why people stay at Facebook and Google and at, and at these places. It seems like, so what, you get a, a muffin. So who cares? But like, I don't 
Let's let's go over to the the other factor in running a school, which is the principals. So I want to start with Devora. Um, what do you think is the role? What should be the ideal role of a principal in a school? Is it discipline? Is it, is it? Is it? Is it? <laughs> I have it in my notes on that one. Defer to Devora. She has spent the last three years in administration. <laughs> no, no. I'm not in administration, but like in working closely with administrators. But. Um, I think that there is no one right way to be a principal. It's just not realistic. No, there's, you know, there's a reason why there's hundreds of books about how to be a great manager, how to be a great visionary, how to be a great leader, right? How to be a great leader in general. There's no one way. What's important to know is, um, as a principal or administrator in the school is, is that what are your strengths and your weaknesses? What kind of principal are you? Are you a logistical principal? Are you a strategic principal? Are you a visionary principal? Once you know who you are and you're able to identify that in yourself, your goal is to build yourself a great team. The best schools I've worked at are because I love working with the team that I'm working with. So that means that my principal knows that she can do this and I can do that and the other person can do that. And we create like we create like exactly like we're weaving in the strands to create a really strong system so that we um, can that we can make a really strong foundation in order so that the, the teachers and the classes and the students can run very smoothly. And that's the biggest part is knowing when do you need help as a principal? When do you need help as an administrator? When do you need, when do you need to defer to others? When do you need to bring in the outside pieces? Um, and in that way, it makes it clear once you've kind of realized that there is no one blueprint. People are great for lots of different reasons. And um, a principal can be all different types. You just really have to stop and ask yourself, who am I? What can I do? And what do I need in order to successfully meet my parents' needs, my board's needs, and my students' needs? Right. Okay. So but, so what the, just in, the, in the terms of the question, like what should the principal be focused at primarily? What should be their first primary focus in terms of running the school? Like what's their main goal, their main objective? And from there, everything else of being a good principal will flow out of? Culture. Everything will stem from the culture that you create. The culture of what do you want your students, what do you want your classrooms to look like? What do you want your staff to look like? What do you want your staff meetings to look like? What do you want the students to look like? 
you know, what is an ideal yeshiva, yeshiva you work at? What is your ideal teacher? What is the ideal yeshiva teacher? What is the ideal class look like? That way, you, without knowing that, how can you do anything else? With that, who are you, you know, in, in New York, you've got choice, right? New York, New Jersey, the tri-state area, you have a lot of choices when you want to choose a yeshiva for your kids. So then that means that if I don't know who I am as an administrator and I haven't set up the culture in my school, then who am I selling to? Who, what parent am I trying to pull in the door to tell them this is what my school looks like? So I think that's the very first job of any leader to say, what is going to be the culture at this school? And I think modeling, I want to add to that, because I think we've seen a lot of principals come in and say things, um, but I think it's hard sometimes for them to model what it looks like in building that culture. So I think that that's probably sometimes the hardest piece. When you come in and you have so many fires to put out, and then you need to take a step back and think, how am I modeling the culture that I want it to be? Mm-hmm. That's how it's professional development. Yeah. So I know I've talked about this. Like, you know, we're told, you know, be be innovative, be progressive, think about your lessons, design them like this. And then we sit down in a professional development and somebody backs in our face for three hours. And we look at each other and say, Wow, okay, this maybe wasn't an example of how we're supposed to be teaching. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's go back to what we spoke about earlier about that, you know, how kids, a lot of times, and especially they're getting it from their parents, they feel that a lot of the work is not important, it's not necessary, it's busy work, I don't need to know this, it's not going to help me in life. So how do we answer that question? Why do we need to learn how to do long division? Why do we need to learn how to write script? Like these things are not, I mean, we're all going to have calculators in our pockets growing up, let's face it. So why, why, why bother? It's really important to know that the important thing is to understand is, is that, yes, there is busy work in school. There's no doubt about it. Our system is set up in a way in which part of the job of the school is child care. Let's be honest. Our parents are working, and most parents, especially for yeshiva education, most of our parents are working 8 to 12 hour days a, a day. So we have to recognize that. And, and from the early 19th century, when, when schools were set up, let's say here in America, because that's what I can speak to being an American, right? It was set up as a system of part of it was childcare and part of it was to train you to be a good employee for the workplace. Mm-hmm. And, and the education system has always responded to whatever's going on in the world, right? So when World War, when the World Wars came about, the school had to be more patriotic because we had to teach the kids to be patriotic so they didn't want to sign up for the next war, right? And when JFK became president and he was handsome and, and very fit, PE became a big emphasis in the education system because we all wanted to look like him. Not that that's possible, but we did. And so um, that's one thing we just have to get off the, uh, out of the way is that, yes, there is, a, there is an element of education that will always be filling time a little bit and busy work because ideally... Could you really, you know, even looking at a Shiva system, the key elements of what we want to teach, we could probably do in less hours a day, but we have a realistic job in front of us. So okay, we tell the kids, we tell the kids, oh, we're really just glorified babysitting. Is that what we tell them? No, no, but it is something that is important to know is that our world is set up in a way in which the kids have to be in school eight hours a day. That's, it's just, the, it's just the world we live in now. So then once we've got, once we're aware of that, and we're not going to tell it to the kids, but we know it as, as adults and we have to recognize that and own that. Then we start to say, but how do I make these hours purposeful? And, and what am I really preparing these kids for? So my thing that I think of is when I'm teaching anything, 
long division or yeah, I was just talking about this as a student who watches the freaking I will have a calculator in real life. I don't need long division. I don't need to know how to carry and regroup and whatever. So my answer was to her was to her that, but you do need to know how to be, be careful about details. And you do need to know about how to do, how to solve multi-step problems. You know, making, you know, in a very basic way, making sure this is a multi-step problem with complex, a, a complex algorithm that you have to learn how to problem solve. So I bring it to my philosophy as an educator is um, something that's called known in the educational world was the four C's is that instead of the olden days where we're like reading, writing and arithmetic, right? Nowadays, what do I need a student to know how to do? I need them to know how to be a, a good communicator. I need them to know how to be a good collaborator. I need them to know how to be creative and a creative thinker. And I need them to know how to be a critical thinker. That's my job now as a 21st century educator, because they're not wrong. They will have calculators. They will be able to Google the answers to many basic, like what year was the Declaration of Independence written in, you know? But how will they be uh, an effective human being, a moral human being, an effective employee, an effective person in relationships if they know how to do the four C's? And that's what I think is our job now as educators. Shana, I know you have a lot to say about that. Go ahead. I, first of all, I'm vehemently going to disagree with Deborah on the first point. I do not agree with her. I do not think there should be any busy work in school. I think busy work is a result of poorly trained or burnt out teachers. Um, to me, Deborah says I'm an idealist and not always a realist, <laughs> perhaps, but I really do think that everything is supposed to be purposeful in school. And I think about it like Devora in terms of the four C's and the way that I always I always just boil it down to critical thinking sometimes because it's easier for everyone to write collapse, you know, collaboration towards that goal, communication towards that goal, creativity, right? It all kind of falls under what I say is critical thinking. And to me, that's the purpose of school. So if we're thinking of critical thinking and kind of analytical thinking as the outcome, there's not a lot of work that's busy work. So um, if I think about a lot of, for example, I'm a history teacher. And I think often people associate busy work with history, right? Names and dates and memorization and stories to be repeated. And in my class, I always tell the students, anytime I give you an assignment, a task, a quiz, any uh, assessment I ever give you, you can feel free to have any resources that you need on hand and available at your fingertips, including Google. Because the reality of the world is that you will have it. And I think a lot about this um, when I think about limited college education. This is something that I speak with teachers a lot about. Um, and, and it falls under the category of busy work. Let's take a Chumash test that your daughter might be studying for, right? The most common thing, what is she doing when she's practicing? And I call it practicing for a Chumash test as well. Repeating the list of Myanmar Omeyes and Omina Amara that she has to know. That is absurd. Absurd. If, it's, if a teacher sits and thinks about it for one minute, like you said, I have a lot to say. If a teacher sits and thinks about it for one minute, those Myanmar Omeyes and Omeyamar and Omeyna Amar have no basis in reality for assessment. All the child has done is memorize useless and, uh, and out of context information that will have no purpose towards the end goal, which is building a critical thinker. The fact that students take a Chumash test without a Chumash in front of them it's actually bizarre if you think about it. Right. Because why do we teach students Chumash? 
I recently asked this to a group of teachers, actually, just on Friday. I was speaking with some new teachers, and I said to them, uh, well, why do you teach Chumash? Right. And they said, well, we connect to Hashem that way. Right. I said, yeah, but I connect through Hashem. I don't connect through Torah, right? There's all these right. ways. I connect to Hashem. Why should I? Right. I want to I wanna cook for Shabbos and connect Hashem <laughs> through cooking for Shabbos. Actually, I don't even plan to go to seminary. Why do I have to know Chumash? My brother can learn Right? And we can do this about everything all day. We can do this about math. We can do this. Right? Why learn it? And so when I ask teachers that question and they cannot answer it in a way that contains a universal answer, for me, I know that those teachers are doing busy work. So right. let's just start with that. Busy work is a result of a lack of driving purpose and mission in your learning. So in my conversation with this teacher, we eventually got to this point. Why do we learn Hamish? One, because it is, at the end of the day, the doctrine of our Yiddishkeit. We need to know it because we're people of the book, not for no reason, right? This engagement that we have in Hamish builds our identity as Jews. But also, it's more than that. It's also the source through which we get all of our understanding of how to behave as Jews. How do we not only connect with Hashem, but also how are we supposed to write, how are we supposed to emulate and present this idea of being um, you know, an uncharacteristic, right? And the spe- special people in the world. So in that vein, and if that's the point and the reason, right, that we started to learn from this, the first year, which is a whole nother story, but in thinking about girls' education, part of why she felt it was so important for girls to learn tax and Hamesh. Um, if that's the point, what is Amir and Alamina Amar? All that's asking is, do you know how to read a pasta and translate it? That's where it comes from. And Asking a student if they know how to read a pasuk and translate it is only meaningful if they get a new pasuk that they've never seen before. So I always say to a teacher, if 99% of the content on your Chumash test, your Navi test, a student has seen before, we're only assessing for one skill, and that's the skill of memorization, a skill which has no basis in importance and purpose for the rest of their life in the 21st century world. And so when we think about busy work, I don't think there's room for it at all. Now, does some work look like busy work? Yes. For example, you need to memorize the multiplication table. There's no other way. You need to know it in your sleep. It's relevant to going to the supermarket and figuring out, you know, the sale price of the fruits and vegetables, right? Like there are some rudimentary, normally it's up to about fourth or fifth grade, you know, math and grammar and some things that could look like busy work. But they're not busy work. They're all towards building the purpose of becoming critical thinkers about the world around you. And that's it. So yes to the four C's, uh, yes to the purpose of education being about building critical thinking. And if busy work is not directed to accomplishing that, it should be dumped in the garbage. Mm-hmm. So what do we do? A, a lot. Uh, fact is, a lot of the work that the, the, the children are getting is busy work. Do we... Let them know that it's busy work? Do we show our displeasure? Do we no, speak? Do we try it. to change the system? What should we do? Yeah, you cancel it. You pick it up <laughs> and you say to the teacher, what is the point? What is your objective? I have done this in a much nicer way. But yes, I said to a teacher very gently, right? Can you walk me through the purpose of your Chumash test? So the teacher says, well, it's to make sure that they understand the main ideas we learned. They could read and translate in the Farshan. They understand the basic, you know, syntax of the Pasuk and the translation. Great. So then if that's the case, 
but you have memorized the Pasuk, how is this a reflection of an authentic assessment of a student's skills? And I think that, again, busy work is just a misled activity. It's not to, right, it's not intended to do harm. And unlike Deborah, I don't even think it's intended to entertain. I think it's well-intentioned but misdirected work because it lacks purpose and focus. Mm -hmm. Okay. Deborah, you have anything to add to that? I think that that Shauna's idealism and the beauty of her perspective and philosophy really um, speaks to 21st century America that we really feel like we have to be, we have to be purposeful in every single thing we do and that everything we do has to strive towards some greater goal. But the reality is, is that when I'm in a classroom, which is a great class for three and a half hours a day, is that sometimes I see in my class, my job as a teacher is so many more things in this day and age than it used to be, right? I'm a parent, I'm a lunch lady, I'm a therapist, I'm a nurse, I'm whatever that kid needs me to be in that moment. And sometimes if I'm sitting there and I see that those kids need a down activity, and a parent might look at that and say, Mrs. Brooklyn, this 20 minutes of this activity where they were coloring, you know, a, a, a pop art picture to create a collage poster for the wall, that wasn't purposeful. That was coloring. Okay. And my answer to them would be, it was meditative. They needed some downtime. They needed some time to kind of like de-stress, de-focus. And that's one of the things that I really think about as an educator is to create a healthy I want your kids to come out of my class healthy human beings and that, you know, we're so emphasis, we're so focused on like getting, checking things off the to-do list and, and like busy, busy, busy and busy is good. And if I'm purposeful and I'm doing this, that's important. But sometimes I feel like you have to teach the classroom is supposed to be a microcosm of the world. Sometimes you got to teach kids. It's okay to be down for a few minutes. You can chill. You can meditate. That's all right. And a parent might look at that and say, that's busy work. And I say, no, it's meditating. It's learning how to turn off sometimes and decompress. So that we can go on and we can go on our multiplication tables and do it better because our brains relax and we're ready to go. Well, let me just clarify that way. Yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't ever call that busy work. It is coloring. No, no, no. But I actually disagree with that. I would never term it busy work. I'll give you an example. You I teach 10th and 11th grade, and the day before Shavuot, we did a cheesecake competition. Okay. And you might be wondering from somebody who is talking about purpose, purpose. Because like Deborah, I agree. There are purpose in things that feel non-academic. The best school I ever worked for required every student to be in one musical a year. Having a driving purpose and busy work, right? I don't necessarily, like, the point is everything students do need to have a purpose. The purpose can be meditative. The purpose could be building social-emotional skills. The purpose could be allowing for creativity. Um, As a matter of fact, I'm the first one to say that one of the aspects of my new engagement with my own children in youth education is the lack of creativity, right? I said, where's art? Art is so important, I know, for one of my kids who's kind of this creative thinker who engages with developing his mind in in a way in art that just doesn't come out otherwise. So to clarify, to me, busy work is useless work. It's not work that feels not academic. Does that make sense? Yes, very important. To, very important clarification. Okay, let, let's go on to the next topic. So we 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 we've had the the faculty of Yeshivat Hatid and Tinek on our show, and we had even a board member come on, someone who uh, one of the founders of the school, 
And they have a radical approach to education. And they their their main goal is to keep the cost of education down and to make it more effective, to not need as many teachers outside the classroom as they and which obviously will reduce the overall cost of of what it, what it costs to, to educate a child. So in their school, they're able to to cut down the the need for extra help by breaking up the classroom into groups, teaching the kids through uh, through different systems, through between a, a, a mixed model where they have some education on the computer, some through the teacher, uh, whatever it is. It's a whole uh, elaborate system. What do you feel about that system? What makes their school unique? I know, Dvorah, you have something to say about this. And what can we adapt, if anything, from their, their, their approach to other Jewish schools? For new listeners to Pinup 2.0, I really encourage everyone to go back and listen to that episode. It is an excellent episode, okay? So I listened to it, and I'm a new fan of Rabbi Ronan. Um, and so I have um, a thought of what I, my thought is, is that his model of um, blended, a small cohort learning and a blended learning, it's actually not a new innovative model. Um, it, it, you know, there's studies published on this going back as far as 1997, showing and demonstrating that this is an effective model in which if you can effectively implement it in your school, then it will lead to greater student achievement. Um, and a lot of a lot of studies, a lot of writing has been going on about station rotation work and, and the, the type of model that um, Yeshiva has had works with the last 20 years. So it's not exactly that his model is innovative. I think, and I really hope he recognizes and people who are like fans of that school and like, you know, I really hope people start looking at it, is that what's innovative about his approaches is that he's an out-of-the-box thinker. He's, he didn't look at every other yeshiva and say, or yeshiva hated whoever founded that school, didn't look at every other yeshiva and say, we have to make a typical school and then we have to figure out how to cut down costs. No, they start, they like, they said, what can we do to make an educative environment, an educational environment, and in doing so, let's think out of the box so that we can keep keep down costs. One of the things that I thought was super exciting about what he did is, is he made partnerships with the Liberty Science Center in order to keep down his his, his faculty costs of of um, having educators, importing educators for, who are who are like, you know, certified as science educators. So they're getting the best of the best to come in, do different seminars with the kids. The kids are learning exciting, interesting things. And in the meantime, the yeshiva is keeping down its cost of having to have a full-time person who has to keep coming up with new ideas and may not necessarily be, you know, the most certified or educated person to be able to teach that subject. Um, Being able to maximize the technology program, being able to maximize parent volunteers. He is doing what we all should be doing as educators, which is just thinking outside the box and saying, just because school looks like this, does it have to look like this? And I think that's actually what makes Yeshiva Hasid um, innovative, is that they just, they were really creative. We were just discussing this, actually, because we were thinking about um, ideas for extracurriculars in Yeshiva. We were talking about how much students see them, how much they gain from them, but how few resources are available, both in terms of, you know, part-time people to run it and and money. And so one of the things that I was saying was that I think we can think outside of the box on this. So we were brainstorming some ideas like, you know, parents always say, what can we do? How can we get involved? So for example, what would it mean to have parent volunteers running lunch programs, right? So maybe we can have a technology class and an art class and a, and a, um, 
and, uh, you know, some, some leagues and, right, all of these different opponents. But what would it mean to find some parents who do six-week rotations to come in once a week mm-hmm. to offer okay. that? He gets the um, for leagues. Yeah, that's what I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. The parents wouldn't run it. That's what we were discussing because uh, somebody was just telling us that her mom, you know, her, that her mom came to town and she does art. Oh, yeah. And so we were talking about what would that mean to get like family members coming in to run it. Like instead of calling and complaining that there is none, okay, that's, you know, you have a valid point. What can you do to contribute to the solution? The floor is yours. <laughs> exactly. And we were talking about Devorah's husband who, you know, is in tech, right? Um, or I did, there was another dad who said, you know, why don't we have Scratch Club? And I said to her, you know, he was he was going on and on to me about why don't we have Scratch Club? And all I kept thinking about is, great, come in and run a six-week program. So I think it's exactly that kind of out-of-the-box approach. But what do you feel in general about the cost of education? Should we should we be looking at ways to bring down the cost of education? I don't think it's possible. <laughs> I'm just going to be straightforward. I don't think reducing costs. Your idealistic Wait, I'll tell you why. Because I lived in Palo Alto when they did this. But yes. Okay. Let's just say we've seen this attempt, and we actually saw back in the 80s and 90s. So. Um, a school that we know tried to reduce costs and come up with all of these, these structures around reducing costs. And a head of school that I worked at, which was a different school, but in the same neighborhood, uh, actually pointed out a lot of studies that were done in the 80s and 90s when it was popular for Jewish faith schools that they were going around having tuition. And it was a model based on like how many kids you had and how much you can pay over time. And we were reducing tuition, but giving much fewer scholarships. And then it would even out, right? And um, it all failed. It all failed. So while I am, yes, an idealist, the reality is that that's how much education costs. If we look at public schools across America, which I think are a decent metric because they have huge class sizes, they, their teachers range in, in you know, quality, their extracurriculars range. Um, we look at what it's costing. It's costing $20,000, $25,000 a student in many, many, many middle-class districts across America. Mm-hmm. So the thought of, of reducing education, which at most schools is now hovers around 15000 obviously, you know, some places less and some places more, doesn't seem realistic to me. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, think yeah. we, I think we have to reduce costs because we speak, we're, we're at a school, you have customers, your customers are the parents, and they it's one of the things they want us to do is to show that we're demonstrably trying to make an effort to give your child, maximize your dollar and give your child the best education we can, but keeping in mind that you have four, five, six kids to educate. And right. that's a part of Yeshiva life and we have to respect that. And, and we're paying for the general education system as well with our property exactly, taxes. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Technology. That's a big, a hot topic. It's been a topic for years already. And whether we like it or not, our kids are hooked on technology and it's really hard to keep them away from it. Um, You're both in education and you both see the effects of it. What do you see? What what can we do about it? Is there, what problems, first of all, discuss the problems that that it causes and what could we realistically do about it? Um, so, you know, it's very interesting is that um, uh, one of the things I was reading about when I was doing my uh, master's degree was that um, some things teachers used to complain about with Sesame Street in 1979, which was 10 years after it aired, 
or after it started airing, teachers were complaining that Sesame Street messed up the attention span of kids. <laughs> that it shortened it like four or five minutes at a time. And then kids expected you to go on to a new and interesting topic, right? Now, obviously, six years later, we get Sesame Street and we're like, it's amazing. I just wish that that's all my kids watch is Sesame Street, right? <laughs> but it, it, it does bring up an interesting point because, right, YouTube, um, the most, the maximum length of a video where you're going to get the maximum audience is about five minutes. And for every second over five minutes, you will lose viewers. So that means, um, and, and compounded on top of that is, is that the average TikTok video is 60 seconds long. So that means that we are competing, I see very much so for the last 10 years, we are losing their attention. And we've got, if Microsoft and Facebook and their, all their data is correct, I've got eight seconds to hook a kid into class. And not only do I have eight seconds to hook them in, I have five minutes of their full attention before they turn off and they want some other new, interesting, exciting thing to do. So one of the things we have to do as teachers, unfortunately, you know, is that the genie's out of the bottle. Even the most yeshiva schools were letting K tablets into school. And even the ones who thought that they had the strongest filters were quick to discover that the kids are smarter than we are and they're faster than we are and they know how to get around it. So that really goes back to my, you know, my, my philosophy of the four C's of, teaching them how to be critical thinkers, teaching them how to be aware, teaching them teaching them how to be digital citizens in this brave new world where we might not even understand the language they're saying, but feeling confident enough to say, I'll take you by the hand and I'll help you out with this. And I'm not afraid of it. I'm more about how can I use this and, and teaching the kids that technology is just a tool like anything else. It's just a tool. It's not the ends to a means. It's not the end all and be all. Being an instant influencer grammar and TikTok star yeah. is not like going to get you anywhere in life, you know? And then like, where does that get us? Um, and, and really kind of like not being afraid to talk about that with kids and, and to understand that like this is their new reality and, and understanding that like I've, I've got five minutes. I got five minutes to do that and to teach them and to hopefully get them and teach them that like, yeah, okay, I'm a real person in the real world and I see it too and I use a smartphone, great. But like, I also know how to put my smartphone down and I know how to have a normal conversation, do you? I know how to spell properly, do you, when you're communicating because text language is not gonna cut it when your boss asks you to send an email to a new customer, you know? So I just think being super realistic about that. So wait, so, so Shana, before you go, so Dvor, you're saying that really in, in the class, you really only have five minutes? Is that it? Is that true? I think, I think I've seen in the last ten years that my that their attention spans have 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 very very been been okay. very. So serious. you have to try to get your point across really in in, I, I in a very that, short amount of time. Uh, my model is is that I can do a frontal engaging hook or story or lesson or give over the key objective of my lesson, and I'll have somewhere between five to six minutes to do that. Maybe eight if I've really got them and I'm really good at what I do and it's a really good story. Um, and then after that, I need to switch them over to a new type of um, a new type of activity, something more hands-on, something where either they're moving around or they get to partner up and talk to someone else. And then I got to break up the class again another eight minutes later to try to bring them all back together and let's talk about it. The kids today require a lot of they require a lot of hooks, a lot of movement, a lot of new, interesting, innovative. Um, and I think that goes back to Yeshiva Hatid. One of the reasons that their model is being successful 
is that um, they do this rotation, they do stations, and the kids are moving from a frontal instructor to a technology to a different instructor to back to group work. Um, and I think that I think part of that is that they're super realistic about the kids that we're dealing with today. I would definitely, yeah, agree to everything Devora said. I was thinking about this question in a slightly different angle, which is that my students who are on social media, right? So the modern Orthodox students, my not from students, whoever it is. Um, one of the things I noticed is- Plenty of Orthodox students also, <laughs> let's face so, it. So this is a, okay, so <laughs> yes, I should, pre, I should preface what I'm gonna say by this. I was under the impression that smartphones were not accessible. I watched my nieces and nephews not be able to have smartphones. And about five years ago, um, no, maybe like three years ago, my sister and I decided to start a business together. And everyone told us we could only be successful if we would get Instagram. And in general, I'm not a major social media user, just by nature. And uh, we went on Instagram to try to start our business. And I couldn't believe how many of my yeshivish friends were on Instagram. So I was totally blown away by that. Um, and one of the things that really made me think about is this point about education that instead of turning a blind eye, we need to be realistic and understand that we may be able to ban technology or filter it or um, construct it in a way that feels kosher to us in the years that they live under our roof. But the reality is, is that a 20-year-old married husband or wife can do whatever they want. And I think we need to be realistic in thinking about education. I think the education is twofold. I think one is the practical part of technology. So how do we use it in a way that's not dangerous and obsessive and anxiety producing and psychologically uh, dangerous? But there's also the other piece, which is the hashkafa piece. Like um, Devorah knows, and I always say this, um, how like we, you know, we won the battle on TV and we even kind of won the battle on Facebook. But suddenly we forgot to talk about social media. And next thing you know, everybody is on Instagram was definitely what I thought was very surprising content and visuals, especially considering how friendly people are in life. And I, my Instagram feed would read pretty similar for my from and not from friends, which was kind of bizarre. But it made me think about the fact that, you know, maybe there wasn't clearly communicated education, both hashkafically and technologically, around the realities that kids are going to face. Um, so that's that's like in terms of social media and, and practice and lifestyle. But the second thing I want to speak to about technology is the educational components of technology. So maybe our high schools don't have students searching on Google and maybe uh, they're not asked to do research reports that require them to access, you know, lots of databases. But the reality is, is that most of our students are going on to need to do this. I teach in a from college course. And you would be surprised at how much plagiarism I encounter. And a major reason I encounter this plagiarism when I look into it is just a lack of knowledge. A student didn't understand that the source was unreliable and plagiarized in itself. A student wasn't taught about what it means to copy and paste. Um, another issue I get all the time is I can't find that online. And so I'll say to the student, nothing on the internet about home Christmas. Not literally that bad, but definitely what I'm asking for a higher level thinking, you know, master's program kind of work. And uh, I'll often say to the student, did you try Googling the following three search queries? And then they get everything they need. 
And so there's also the academic component of, of education, which I wish that schools would be realistic about as well. So you might not want the internet in your school, but to engage with it in a way that creates both hashkathic and academic and psychological frameworks. Maybe it's in a computer class. Maybe it's in a six-part series, right? It doesn't need to be integrated, but I think that's really, really, really important to make sure your students are not going out there in the world and suddenly the door flies open and they have no idea how to confront it in a way that, you know, helps them continue to be their best self. Right. So you're saying basically training on how to use technology or how to use it properly yeah. and, and, and in a way that they're, they're going to use it usefully in the real world. Yeah. Yes. Like uh, now I was thinking about it recently with my students. These are with my non prone students, but they're not getting it either. Like this is not something, by the way, that is my experience is across, um, you know, hashkafic lines. I think everyone's just missing the boat on this at their own level. So for example, my not from students, every, I mean, they're, they're on social media on Google, right? No one's expecting any kind of filters or technology limitations. But this week, for example, the anti-Semitism flooding their social media accounts as a result of the fighting in Israel. So many of our students expressed that they had no idea how to respond. They felt buried under a barrage of anti-Israel, pro-Palestinian. They didn't even know how to filter and sift what do you do when someone you thought was really good friends with you starts to post anti-Israel rhetoric, right? What you, they, they just don't necessarily, they're just not, uh, you know, educated enough to know how to engage with it, which again, goes back to the purpose of what we're doing in school. Are we building critical thinkers for life? And again, speaking about what we do in class, I took an entire class period to walk my students through how do we think about these complex issues? I'm not going to tell you how to think, but we're going to talk about the history of some of the statements people are making and some of the memes that you're seeing and some of the hashtags that uh, people are posting on your pages. And just to break it down to help them understand about how to think about it. What does anti-Semitism look like in 2021? And how do you engage with that in the technology that you're so plugged into all day? Okay, so before we close, Sean, I just, I'll start with you. What experiences have you had through your system, through going through the system yourself as a, as a student in schools growing up and in all the different communities that you've lived literally across the world? Uh, how has that given you the perspective that you have on today's yeshiva school system and the things that it can be done to, impro to improve it? Um, that's a great question. The first thing I got to say that Yeshiva school problems are not unique to yeshiva schools. It might look different, it might feel different, but the, the issues that Devorah talked about, about you know, heightened anxiety and competition and this race to nowhere are problems that are pervasive around the world. Questions that you spoke to about busy work and highly skilled and trained teachers are problems around the world. Um, one of the things though that I think yeshivas have going for them which is something that's very hard to model in the outside world, is this sort of hashkafic, idealistic role that schools play in people's lives that I think, um, if used correctly, could really, could really help shape and structure higher quality education moving forward. I think one of the biggest challenges that other schools have is well, how do we address some of the complexity of what it means to be growing up in these difficult years that you're in school if we also can't convey any 
of our philosophy or ideals about life. And I think what's really nice about um, yeshiva schools is that they are there to do some of that guidance and to do a lot of that handholding and that emotional, psychological, and just general holistic whole child approach in a way that feels authentic and purposeful. I know I had so many positive experiences in that regard growing up. Um, and I, I hope that schools realize that that's a big thing going for them. And they find ways to bring that in to their teaching and to their learning. And in thinking about building critical thinking and purpose um, and all that they do, that they can, that they can, um, that they can plug into that mission. So you feel that's, that the schools should be giving, that sh- they should take a stand on things. They should give over their feeling about the Yiddishkeit, about why we do certain things. They should give that over. They shouldn't try to be, stay, stay, keep their hands out of any touchy or you know, controversial you know, it's, subject. It's so it's interesting because the, the teacher, she knows who she is, but my closest teacher from all my years of school um, is the Rosh Hashiva of Lakewood's daughter-in-law. <laughs> and everyone always used to joke about it. But, you know, she was someone who presented herself in a way that was so authentic And every time she taught a class, she really came to the class in thinking about a whole child approach. What am I teaching? Why am I teaching this? And how can I connect to the student in a way that matters? So I am confident to say yes, because I don't think it's about necessarily agreeing, right? We want space for students to be themselves. But I think it's okay in from schools to bring your whole self to the table in a way that's unique and can be helpful to students. Right. Okay, Devora, your story. Go ahead. <laughs> so I did not go Jewish. I'm a convert. Um, I lived all over the country. Um, and my uh, by the time I was 15, I lived in 15 states. And my parents had a very um, old uh, hippie approach to education. But like the world will educate you, um, which didn't really work out the way they expected it to. Um, by the time I got to high school, um, I went with my grandmother and my grandmother was very much a believer in a very strong academic foundation. So I went to prep school in Boston and then I went to secular university. I went to Santa Clara University in California on the Silicon Valley. Um, and then I spent my formative adult years out in the Silicon Valley, really looking at like watching all these exciting, innovative things happening all around me. Um, and then when I found Judaism, I found like purpose and meaning. Um, and it was a rabbi who told me that um, I really was like very much at a loss. Like, what am I going to do? What do I have to contribute to Judaism? I didn't grow up from I didn't grow up when Like, what do I know? And so um, a rabbi told me that you do have something to offer to us. You have a very strong secular background, a secular education background. And that's something our kids need. They need that worldview, but like given over in an appropriate way. Um, so that was how I came to education. Um, and I'm very passionate about that to this day. That, that my unique experience and education um, is really important to what made me who I am. Um, and I very much do like to share that with my older students um, to tell them that, like, you know, I've seen a lot of different things, guys. And it's very important for you to understand what a beautiful thing we have in the Jewish education system. What a beautiful thing and what beautiful potential a good chinuch can be for a child. 
And I really see that in like in the different places I've lived and the different yeshivas I've worked in, the, the role of a Jewish educator is so much more than just being a teacher. I um, wish that I had a teacher who would have kind of come to me and said, hey, are you okay? How's your day going? Do you need something? Need a cup of tea? Need a cookie? Just need someone to talk to? And a Jewish educator never, you know, I have so many amazing colleagues that I've worked with in New York and Palo Alto and here in Houston, who they would never shy away from that question. They would go right up to the kid and say, what's up, sweetie? You okay? Do you need something? Hey, buddy, like what's happening for you today? Um, and that's for me, Coming from the outside looking in is one of the most beautiful things about working in a Jewish school. Um, but I very much also appreciate um, that I have something to offer by saying that in order to be a successful adult in life, and I've seen a lot of, unfortunately, in my life, I've seen a lot of people who did not have good educations and therefore were not successful. And this is outside of the Jewish education world. And I saw the things that kind of held them back and why it held them back. And so to be able to offer that and say, hey, we want our kids to feel confident. We want our kids to feel strong and a strong sense of self and who they are so they can go out into the world and help be the, like, you know, the shining stars of Kalyusrel that we need them to be, both internally for Kalyusrel so that we can be the Goy Kaddish that we're supposed to be, and externally so that we can always be making a Kiddush Hashem. In front school, no, but for real, you know, then you can bring your whole self to the table. Mm -hmm. and it's hard to do elsewhere. Yes, no, absolutely. I, I'm sure your students are, are f to seeing, seeing your, learning about your story and seeing you in real life, giving over what you're teaching to them. It makes it so real. It makes it so meaningful because for them, it's, they take it for granted for the most part. And their right. parents. And and that's one of the things I say to them, that you guys are so lucky that you get this every day. Yes. Like I had to like, you know, read a bunch of books to try to find this. You get it real life. Your Rebbies and your Moras are here in front of you. Do you have something you want to ask them? So ask them right here for you. Go to them say, I need something. Say, I want to talk to you. Your Rebbies and Moras are here for you. And that's such a like amazing, beautiful thing to have for a Jewish kid to know. And that's why I think to answer your question that you asked, Shana, to Jewish should Jewish institutions take a stand? Absolutely. We are half, there are two halves of your child's day. You being at home with your child and me being in the classroom with your child. And your kid brings different elements to the class than they bring home. And so part of my job is to help you rear your child. That's why they say that if I teach you even one letter of all of face, it's as if you're my child for the rest of your life. And I'm totally one of those people when I talk about my students, I say my kids. I say my girls, my kids, and it's very confusing because I, I teach girls and I have four girls in her. So basically, people go like, are you talking about your students or your kids? And Biological students. Like, they don't know. And it's like, I do take it seriously. Like, I, I celebrate their successes. Mm -hmm. I cry when they fail. And that is, that's the beauty of, of, of what it is to be a teacher is that you get to be there for those moments. And that you as a parent want to know that someone like me is there for them. So to say that, like, I'm going to take a step back and I'm not going to take a stand is almost like saying, like, I don't want to take part in what it is you've asked me to do by asking me to be your child's yeah. teacher. So that's why I feel it is important to say to parents, you know, I've noticed 
that she seems to really be struggling this week and having a hard time staying awake. Is there anything I should know? Is there anything you want to talk about? You know, and really kind of like, I've noticed that she's struggling with davening, but don't worry. I've seen this a lot and don't stress out that it's the end of the world. And I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend going crazy and forcing her to daven on the weekend. Just know that she's in this phase of life. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to have those conversations with parents. Excellent. Very good. Okay, you've shared a lot of good ideas. Hopefully some schools are listening. And uh, if they want to get in touch, we'll put them in touch with you, with both of you, because you definitely have a lot to, a lot of good ideas to share. I thank you so much for being an inspiration for so many students and for being there and for coming and sharing your thoughts with us today. Thank you. You've been listening to Chinuch 2.0 a show exploring the changes happening to how we do Chinuch. Chinuch 2.0 is hosted and produced by me, Aaron Parnas. You can subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts or on our website, chinuchshow.com. For suggestions, comments, or guests' ideas, please visit chinuchshow.com. Thanks for listening.